Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins and it's great to have your company. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago or the Way of St. James, a UNESCO-recognized pilgrimage in Spain. Pilgrims walk in the footsteps of Christ's Apostle St. James. There are almost 150 episodes collected over the past three years. And my guests talk about their journey, both on the Camino and beyond. And I was lucky enough to have the guidebook author John Brearley for dinner this week. We talked about our lives and how the Camino had had a huge impact on our lives. John asked my youngest son if he'd seen a change in his father, and he said, oh, yeah, for sure. And my wife said he's much calmer, so that's got to be a good thing. I still remain in contact with a group of pilgrims I walked with on my last Camino in 2017. They recently caught up again to walk from Melide to Santiago, and John Brealey and I spoke about being part of the global Camino family. And I walked into my favourite shop in Sydney on Saturday and a poster hung behind the counter said, Families are like branches of a tree. We grow in different directions, yet our roots remain as one. One of the great joys of the Camino is the food, the sharing of food, sitting alongside pilgrims from around the world, sharing a meal and a conversation, learning from others as our branches spread across the globe. My guest this week is Josma Monique Martinez, author of Tastes of the Camino. Josma is a cookbook author and publisher, recipe developer and culinary instructor. She's on the line from Brazil where it's very early in the morning. Welcome, Josma. Uh, hi, Dan. Thank you for having me on, the, on your podcast. I really appreciate that. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. Let me ask with a very simple question. How many Caminos have you walked? Five. Now, did you walk the first three or four with your mum? I've walked four of the five with my mother, yes. And uh, one of them I walked with my friend. How lovely, walking with your mother. Yes, it is. It, It is lovely indeed. Yeah. Do you remember where you first heard about the Camino? Uh, yeah, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, I first heard of it about 12 years ago, and I heard it in a somewhat backwards way. I was uh, out and about with a group of friends. Um, they'd been, I had just moved to Miami Beach, and there was an activity called Sleepless, Sleepless Night, where a lot of um, cultural institutions were open all night long. So we took advantage of that and hit all the museums between like 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. and walked around town. Um, I was a bit younger, so I was wearing unsensible shoes for that type of activity. And I developed a blister, and at the end of the night, I mentioned it to a friend, like, actually, I developed two blisters, one on each foot. And my friend said, well, if I were on the Camino, I learned on the Camino that how to take care of blisters. And she started telling me everything about how to take care of her of blisters. And I was like, what's the Camino? And so that's the first time I ever heard of the Camino. How, and that wonderful. was in 2007. Yeah. How fantastic. And did you, tr- <laughs> yeah, and so you've now, you learned early on how to <laughs> treat blisters. Did that come in handy on your five Caminos? 
Of course it did. Yes. <laughs> um, I always get it. I always get at least one throughout each Camino. You know, by the time, by the time you were nine years old, you'd lived in four countries. Must've been a fascinating childhood. Um, it was certainly unique and, um, it, you know, and, and yes, uh, it was fascinating having to meet people and learn uh, new languages every two or three years. Um, it was uh, certainly fascinating. And difficult, I imagine, having to make new friends every couple of years. Um, you know, when you're that young, you don't feel it as much. Probably the last move was the one I felt it the most. Yeah, yeah. And how old were you yeah. when you moved to the United States? Um, well, I first, well, I moved as a child uh, for, for about three years. Um, I was four, uh, no, it was two, two and a half years. I was four and we, I left when I was six and a half. Then I moved again at 19 for college. Um, I... Stayed there for five years, moved back to Brazil for two years, and then I moved back for graduate school, and then I've been there ever since. And that's how food became such a huge part of your life. Absolutely. Well, food was already a big part of my life, but that's where I started uh, appreciating more heirloom tomatoes and, I mean, heirloom uh, ingredients, tomatoes being one of them, <laughs> and... Um, and just quality food. Yeah, but I want to get to that concept of heirloom ingredients a little later. But mm -hmm. it, you, you studied in Paris too. Yes, I did. That came a little bit later. Um, so when, once I really started um, saying this is something I, you know, food is something I'm really interested and I started taking um, – non-professional classes here and there and I got to a point where I need to learn more this isn't enough so I decided to go to Paris to go to culinary school and and so you, you're passionate about food and you say everyone has the gift to create a memorable meal all that is needed is a, is a bit of guidance good ingredients and an openness to new culinary experiences but can I ask you can everyone cook I believe yes. Uh, I mean, some of us cook better than others, but I believe everyone can cook. And, and sometimes it's just the exposure to new ingredients or a simple new technique. Yeah, because people always ask me, can everyone sing? Ooh, that one's different. <laughs> I can't. I I can't sing. I certainly can't sing. <laughs> I don't know about that, Yosmar. I bet I could. I bet I could make you sing. I bet you could sing. But I read in your Ooh. bio that you have a passion for heirloom ingredients and artisanal food. So you mentioned it just before. Just explain to us what is heirloom ingredients. What what is that? So heirloom ingredients, um, basically, it's ingredients that sometimes um, they, they'll use, um, for like instance, in tomatoes, they'll use um, seeds of varieties that have not been found in a long time and start oh. planting them and growing them. That is... Um, what heirloom means um there's that, that they're passed down from generation to generation right um 
So, and then you get into very complex explanation of the type of pollination that takes place, which uh, I think would would be a little bit boring to talk about right now. <laughs> well, I can I can give you an example. There's an a, an Italian couple who live behind me here in Sydney, and they bring over every summer huge. Um, bunches of fresh basil that they grow in their back garden and Mm -hmm. it's the same seeds they they collect the same seeds every year dry them and then plant them the following year and they've just used the same seeds every year for for almost the whole time that they've been in Sydney Um, and that's the kind of thing you're talking about right Yes, exactly. So, um, and, and in some cases, using the same seeds uh, year to year, like um, basically repurposing the seeds or recycling mm, the mm, seeds. Mm. Um, in other cases, it's um, finding in a seed of an uh, of an ancient strain and replanting it to bring back that that type of vegetable. Um, and that's where I find it fascinating to learn a little bit about the seeds and, and where that seed came from, um, et cetera. I mean, that could be a whole book in itself. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet, <laughs> I'll bet because yeah. that, that's really exciting because you can it, or reintroduce old foods or vegetables and fruits that haven't been seen for quite some time. And that ho- opens up a whole new, I imagine, Pandora's box of cooking and, and, and cooking ideas and concepts. Well, yeah, because sometimes it, the, 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 the flavor profile is different. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what I find about heirloom ingredients is that uh, not only the, the flavor profile is different, but the flavors are more intense than, you know, the hybrid, uh, the tomatoes made with hybrid seeds out there or that are, um, the more modern tomato, for instance. Yeah, because so, sometimes they don't really have much taste these days. Exactly, particularly those greenhouse ones. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's true, it's true. And when you yeah. do eat a tomato of someone's, uh, you know, the, the plant in their backyard, you think, oh, that tastes so fantastic because everything we buy at the supermarket is it's not the way we should be eating it, is it? It's not. It definitely isn't. Um, but, you know, eating a tomato, even if it's a, a greenhouse tomato, um, is better than not eating a tomato. That's <laughs> what I say. But, yeah, well, you're um, right. Yeah. But, but, yes, if you can get your hands on some wonderful heirloom vegetables, by all means, um, you know, I, I think it's worth the premium that you pay for that for them. Mm, yeah, without question. How has yeah. your traveling life uh, impacted your culinary life? Oh, uh, it, it has impacted in it in a thousand and one ways. Um, first of all, it's what really gives me exposure to new foods. It's what really creates the curiosity when I come back home to try to recreate, um, you know, the Tarta Santiago from Spain or the, um, you know, um, the vegetable pancakes from Vietnam or um, pad thai from from Thailand. And yes, I've been exposed to pad thai before and and, um, and Vietnamese pho before, but 
it's um, wanting to recreate that experience at home. Um, you know, you you learn when when you recreate that experience at home, you learn a lot about not only how to make the dish, but you learn about the ingredients and l- learning of the ingredient. When you learn about the ingredients, you learn a lot about something inherent in that region or whether it's a cultural aspect or, um, uh, you know, why do they, why does the Tata Santiago have the sense of, of St. James on it? Well, because it was developed in this region that is famous for the Camino. Um, something I- I- innocuous like that. You learn about that, and then you learn about the Camino, and you're like, oh, wow. Or maybe you knew about the Camino, but you learned something else. Um, and, um, you know, when I make Pad Thai, I learn about lemongrass, um, mm. um, chili peppers that I otherwise wouldn't normally use in my in my normal cooking. Um and sometimes if you have the experience of being long enough in the country and you can uh, take a cooking class or, or visit a, a market, you'll learn stuff that you didn't know about how, why they eat these foods and under what circumstances. And that's what I mean. You learn a lot about the culture. Yeah. Today, I think I went off on a tangent there. No, no, no <laughs> that you didn't go off on a tangent at all okay. because you've led me perfectly yeah. into the next question. And that is that okay. Tastes of the Camino is 30 recipes featuring towns and villages along the Camino Francaise. How did you compile it? Because um, I, I know you've walked a few Caminos now. Was it, was it an idea you had the first time you walked or was it? Just tell us, no. talk, talk us through the story. I did not have that idea before I first walked. Um, you know, when, um, when I first embarked on the Camino, I was um, pretty um, pretty clueless as, as to what I was getting into. Um, I was just walking. Um, I didn't do a lot of research. It was 2011. There were a few, uh, you know, there was, I think, one forum and one group uh, Facebook group, Camino Facebook group, and um, or at least that I was aware. Mm. Actually, I wasn't even aware of the group. I became aware of the group afterwards. But, um, you know, the information was fragmented, which in a way was good because I had no idea what I was getting into, which probably was the best for the best of me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but when I embarked on that first Camino, a very dear friend suggested I write about my experiences on the Camino. And even back then, I felt there were too many books about people's experiences on the Camino. And I, you know, I knew writing was, I'd always dream of writing a cookbook. Um, although I didn't have the idea then. Um, but I knew writing was a very laborious process. So I was like, if I'm going to write, I'm going to write something that is unique. It's different and not just unique in my mind, but in, in unique that everyone will say, oh, wow, this is a really cool idea. Um, so I went on that Camino and my friend said, yes, man, just promise me, keep, keep a journal, write every day and an idea will come to you. Well, I went on that first Camino. I kept a journal. I came back and I reread my journal And let's put it this way. It was pretty boring because I (laughs) seem to somehow focus a lot on my pain. And 
I was like, nobody's going to want to read about this. So, you know, I put that, (laughs) I put that aside and forgot, said, I'm not writing a book. But about four months later, I'm walking on the beach. I live in a town called Miami Beach, in a city called Miami Beach. And I live probably 10 blocks from the beach. Um, So I was walking on the beach on a Sunday, which is what I usually do Sunday mornings. And I go really early because it gets really hot where I live. And I, it was about nine in the morning. I probably had walked five miles at that point or seven, eight kilometers at mm. that point. Mm. And um, I remember thinking if I were on the Camino, I'd be having breakfast number two right about now. <laughs> <laughs> and then that moment is when I had my, my moment of clarity. I know what my book is going to be. It's going to be a cookbook about the foods that I found along the Camino. And therefore, I need to go back on the Camino to do research. And that's how Camino number two came about. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> because, so yeah, there are two things I love about food on the Camino. It's fresh and it's simple. Is that how you see it? it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's fresh, it's simple, it's rustic, and it's the type of food... Um, you know, let me interject or say one little thing before I go on here. When I was in culinary school, I learned to make very complex dishes, like desserts that had seven different components. Or, or for instance, take I learned how to make beef wellington. Beef wellington has the dough, the crepe, the duxelle. The, the, it has like five different components. Mm. And yes, I make beef wellington about once a year in my home, but... Most people wouldn't even dare to do that at home because it's mm. so complex. Yeah, yeah. And in in my philosophy is um, my current philosophy as a teacher is: if you want to learn to make something complex, I'll teach you. But I want you to learn something that you will actually make at home, that you won't feel intimidated when you make it at home. So um, I tend to, for the most part try to stick to simpler dishes because I know when I'm teaching, because I know that's what people are going to make at home. If it starts getting too uh, convoluted, they get intimidated and then they walk away. And, and that's not what, why I set out to do what I do. Um, you know, that, that to me is not success having people say, Oh yeah, I took a class like this. I never made it. That's not, what I take pride in. Mm. Um, I, I take pride in and getting messages from people who say, Hey, I made it. This is the, the picture <laughs> or here's yeah. a picture or I made it. It was amazing. Or this mm. is so easy. I didn't know it could be so easy. And that's what I, I, I love the joy where I derive my joy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, well, that so. must be ter- a terrific sense of um, accomplishment to see your students enjoying the cooking because cooking can, can, can sometimes be very intimidating. But if you're learning yeah. something simple and something delightful because you're using, again, as we talked about, fresh produce, um, that's, that's really something that they can achieve. And pilgrims would love also to take a little bit of the Camino back to their own kitchens too, I'm sure. Exactly. And then when it comes to the Camino, like you said, it's simple and it's fresh ingredients. I mean, you can't get simpler food than on the Camino. And, and, and 
often so fresh. Like um, I remember I was in a town right outside of Pamplona and I, at Kawakereta, and I had this wonderful cod, um, bacalao ajoariero. Mm. I never had heard of that dish. And as I'm eating it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And it was a, so I, I, I complimented the waiter, which was the owner of the establishment. And, um, and he's like, oh, my wife does that. And he's like, why don't you come and talk to my wife? I was like, sure. So I went into the kitchen and, and we had a, a lovely chat and she explained how she did the dish. And then she took me out to the garden where she picked up the peppers for, for that uh-huh. dish. So it, it, it's to me, the Camino in, very often is the true farm to table. I mean, we use that term, at least in the United States, way too loosely, in my opinion. And and it's trendy um, to say, if you go to a restaurant and like, oh, this is a farm to table um, cuisine or our menu is farm to table, et cetera. But in the Camino, people actually live that. Yeah. And yeah. it's not, it's not a trend. It's a way of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. It's a way of life because, as I've said exactly. on this of this podcast many times, you really are walking through these people's lives. They're, exactly, their little farm villages are working farms, and you're walking mm-hmm. right through the middle of them, past the open sheds where their farm equipment is. There, I mean, it's, it's their lives you're walking through. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, um, I've never put it that way, but that's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. You know, many of the recipes too, um, Yosma are, are very old. Um, and they've, they've, they've survived the test of time, haven't they? Yes. Yes. Um, definitely. Um, some of these recipes are, are, handed down generation to generation and hence many times they're not even written. Um, and and hence, you know, when I was doing my research, I, I talked to everybody that would talk to me, which was way more many people that I ever thought would talk to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, the kindness and, and the generosity with information that I got uh, from people along the communal was amazing. Um, but one thing, it's not like people said, would frequently ask me, so did people just give you a recipe? I'm like, no, they don't he hand me a piece of paper. Here's my recipe. But what I got from them were, um, you know, if I ask questions, I remember asking about the tortilla española, plenty of questions. So, and, um, you know, I, I, I would say, so... Do you scramble the egg slightly before you let it set? And they're and they're like, yeah, you can. Do you use onions? Oh yeah, I love onions in my tortilla. And by the way, when you come to tortilla española, there's there's two distinct camps: the what what many call the onionist, los cebollistas, <laughs> and the non-onionist. So, <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of interesting. And then, particularly when you get something like that. Um, it's kind of interesting, pro. Well, why do you think an onion makes it so much better? And and it was based on those conversations. And I'll give you one more example, which is pretty pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm a culinary geek. But based on those conversations, um, I would come back home when when I got back home, I started saying, okay, this is the dish I want to. Well, this is a recipe I want to develop at home. 
and I would write the recipe as I thought uh, it should be and based on comments I got and then try it once. Usually I'd have to do that process at least three times to get where I wanted to. There were recipes that I had to do easily nine, ten times that I lost count because each time I was like, it's not quite there yet. It's not quite there yet. And so I would do it again, usually changing one or two things so I could keep some sort of control mm. and keep on doing it. Yeah. But the other example that I want to mention is, so the um, infamous Tarta de Santiago, that's a great example. That uh, the the tips of that recipe, I would say, I got in Santiago at the time the Pilgrim's Office was in a different location that it is now. And in front, there was a cafe. And, you know, after my, getting my compostela, my mother and I popped into that cafe, had our breakfast. I ordered Tata de Santiago, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's so much more moist than all the, all the other Tartas de Santiago's I had. So we ended up going there in a period of like 48 hours, ended up going there like three times. By the third time, the, the, the staff recognized us as is common in, in Santiago. And, um, you know, I kept complimenting the Tartas de Santiago and they're like, well, why don't you come talk to our, 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 they call him the cook, but it's really the chef. I was like, sure. And so I was chatting with him. I complimented him, his tarta, and he's like, well, that's a very simple recipe. It's just equal amounts of um, sugar, almonds, and uh, eggs. And, you know, being an American where we use the volume measure much more than the um, weight measure, I was like, by weight or volume? He's like, by weight? And I'm like, do you separate the eggs? He's like, no, not necessary. It's not necessary. And um, and I'm like, do you use any flavorings like cinnamon or or lemon zest? He's like, or vanilla. He's like, you can. It's up to you. And that was the extent of our conversation. I came back home and I put that on paper. Um, I had to figure out how what equal amounts of sugar. Um, eggs and almonds fit in my baking pan, so yeah. that was, you know. And then I, I had those three three ingredients, and then I I started playing with, you know, the vanilla extra, the almond extra, the lemon zest, the cinnamon, and figuring out how I like it most. And that was that. <laughs> and 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 can you now make it exactly the way you like it? Oh yes, I've probably made that recipe. In in eight years, if I had to guess, I've made that recipe probably two hundred times, and I do it in yeah, That's so <laughs> and I good. do it in 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 like I don't have to think about it. Like yeah, recently, yeah. I had a impromptu dinner party. My impromptu was I decided to. Um, to invite some friends with less than 24 hours notice. And it was, you know, the focus of that dinner was really a, a black truffle risotto that I'd been promising some friends. And finally I said, let's do it tomorrow evening, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and, um, and it, but it was so impromptu and I had so many things going on that I told my friends and it's just risotto. There's not going to be side dish. There's not going to be dessert. 
it's just risotto and wine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and they're like, hey, Yasmar, I'll do anything for risotto. That's fine. But of course, knowing me the next day as I was doing my misum pause for the risotto, I was like, I've got to have, have um, dessert. And I quickly, literally, I, I want to say in, in less than seven minutes, I had a Tarta de Santiago in the oven. Wow. You know, because that's how fast I, I, I can manage to do it. Okay. You know? All my listeners are going to be going, okay, it takes me forever. Yeah. That's so great. That is so <laughs> Start great. Start doing it more frequently and it won't take you forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, And that's the thing. Like cooking is a skill. Like the more you do it, the more you comfortable you're in it, uh, doing it. Where did you get your, the stencil for your cross? So the when I first came back from Santiago, I downloaded a, 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 an image from the internet and I cut it. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but but I those don't tend to stay intact for very long, and they get stained, and it's not really sanitary because you can't wash the piece of paper or cardboard or whatever. So I um, I've ever since my second Camino. Actually, it wasn't since my second, before my second Camino, I went to Europe. I researched it all over the U.S. I couldn't find it. And then I took a trip to France, and I had found an online retailer that would deliver in France. So that's where I got my first set of stainless steel um, um, stencils. But I in Santiago, uh, usually you can get them anywhere. Like they're near the market or at the market. There's some stalls that send them. I usually go to a houseware store in the old town called Casa Sole, and I buy a, a kit with two crosses in two different sizes, and that's what I have. Wow, there so, you go. Oh, I'm pleased to ask that little, question. Yeah, it has a little lifter, so it makes it easier to remove from the tarta, which a paper doesn't have a lifter. So, oh, that's or piece fantastic. Of yeah. I, I love it. <laughs> now, I've, I want to ask you a question. And I, I don't know whether you'll be able to answer it, but seafood is very important um, on the Camino, even though if you're walking the Frances, you're never really very close to the coast. Uh, it, it's it's well, always struck me. I mean, Melide, why are we eating? Why is Melide famous for the pulpo? So um, I I can't give you a definitive answer about that second question, but I have uh, a theory about that. And the first question, uh, yes, seafood is prevalent because you are, while you're not walking on the coast, you're very close to the coast. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Um, yeah, so often you're you're less than 100 kilometers away from the coast. Um, and um, so with the proximity, you get amazing seafood. Melide, I believe, Melide, I believe this, I mean, again, this is a theory, it's not fact, or I can't prove it, or I haven't been able to prove it yet. Maybe one day I will prove it. Um, so there is a very famous establishment where people go eat octopus in, Mel in Melide. And I believe that establishment was probably what put Melide on the map as the octopus capital of Spain and possibly the world. Um, you know, and since then, other equally right. as good or even better establishments mm. have popped up and made yeah. it. But that's what I think is the story there. Um, but yeah. I could be wrong. Yeah, we, so. we, we arrived in Melide with, uh, and one of my 
uh, fellow walkers was Lenny, a chef, an Italian chef who actually works in Finland. And I said, oh, we have to go and get the pulpo. And he said, no, no, we have to wait. And we bought a beer in the main street. And he said, now we watch, we wait and watch. I said, what? <laughs> why are we watching? What are we watching? And he said, just wait. And sure enough, all the locals came to this one restaurant with their Tupperware containers and bought their pulpo, their octopus at this little place. And he said, if, yeah. the, if, if the locals are going there, that's where we go. That's, and we knew then. Exactly. And I thought that was very, very clever um, because he knew exactly, yeah. exactly what to look for um, <laughs> in, in, in order to find where the locals go. Hey, you know, yeah. I, I want to talk about your journey, your Camino journey to Yosma, because I saw a post on your Facebook page recently, a photograph of you arriving in Santiago on your first Camino. I think it was eight, <laughs> eight years ago. And you said, the beginning of a lifelong Camino, a new way of living. What happened on the Camino that inspired a new way of living? Well, uh, let me just start with saying that that's evolutionary, not revolutionary. So it didn't happen like it wasn't one thing that happened right. um, that made you, made me want to say, okay, my life is changing. I, and I do know some pilgrims that happens to them, but um, it wasn't my case. My case, um, like I said, I was a little bit clueless on that first Camino. Um, and in my case, I came back and I got, you know, the typical Camino blues. Mm. I also got into a mode where I was like, do I need everything I have? And, and it wasn't, so I started getting rid of things, but it wasn't something like, I know people that say I've sold most of my belongings or now I have only three pairs of shoes. No, that's not me, but now I look at my closet and say, okay, when was the last time I used this thing? Do I ever envision myself using these pair of shoes or oh, yeah. this purse or whatever it is? If not, it's out. Mm. Um, I either sell it, give it away, whatever. Um, and, and so I became, in, in that aspect, I, I became a little bit, and I, I don't want to use the word became less materialistic because I still have material goods and I still like some nice things, um, particularly in my kitchen. Yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, and I'm, I've always been one, I'd rather buy less but quality than a lot and, so, and, and, and give up quality. Um, but I'm much more choiceful with my purchases and I'm much more choiceful with what I want to have in my home. Um, and I'm valuing experiences way more than material goods. Um, you know, I love to travel. So I, I usually say I work to travel. That's, that's my, what I like to do most in life yeah. to travel. Yeah. And um and experiences and and I think you know cooking is also an experience. I love to have friends over to try new dishes and and they all come many times knowing that this is the first time I'm doing something so it might be hit or miss. Um and and so it's just valuing experiences more. Um 
it's um, that's one thing more than material goods. The other thing is leading a less homogeneous life. Mm. Um, I often find that you it's easy to socialize with people that have similar backgrounds as yours, be it age group, be it socioeconomic, your education. I mean, so, so often we, we try to connect people that, that went to the same schools as we did or have the same type of degrees. And I find that so often it's so refreshing to socialize with somebody that doesn't have that same background Mm. that, um, you know, I, for instance, I'm a highly educated person. I have a, a undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and then I went to culinary school. Um, for me, I find I found it fascinating on the Camino, um, walking side by side with a potato farmer or a roofer, and um, just learning from them and and how um, they live their lives. Uh, that I found fascinating. And then I can find people similar to myself in terms of, you know, age, what they do for a living and socioeconomic, et cetera. But also finding a diversity of experiences that they've had that they are willing to share with me and which leads me to see the, the world and life in a different perspective. Yeah. Um, what else can I tell you? And then, of course, um there's the cookbook. Um, I credit the Camino with giving me the, the, or motivating me to embark on this creative journey that I've embarked on. Um, and, and embarking with it, it without necessarily having a plan. I mean, um, I've always had plans for a lot of things in my life. And when I was writing a book, the, the book, not a book, it's right now is only one book. So the book, yeah. um, uh, it, I had no idea what I was doing, but it, I just knew that when the times that I got away from my work, etc., and was able to write, it was the times that I felt the happiest or, or not, not even happy because that's like big word, I think. And it's also a point in time word. Um, but I felt most at peace with myself and I never saw myself as a writer. So being able to do something that developed a side of me that I didn't see, maybe like we were talking about skills um, writing is a skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it, or at least the faster you're able to do it. (laughs) Um, and you know, I didn't envision myself as a writer. So being able to write and about something that are two things that I love the most, the Camino and and cooking, um, it was amazing, you know, and, um, that's not something that I think I would have embarked without having gone on the Camino. But did you like what you discovered about yourself then on the Camino? Uh, I think, yeah, there were certainly aspects that I liked about, um, what I discovered, um, that I could do, that I could do the Camino, that it led me to other pilgrimages and hikes that I would never have thought I would do before. Like if you had asked me five years prior, um, 
I mean, if you had asked me in 2007, that night that I was out with my friends, the first night I ever heard about the Camino, yeah, were, will you consider doing this? I'm like, absolutely not. I don't. <laughs> I don't walk places, you know, <laughs> I don't so walk funny. those long, long distances. I mean, I walk places, but I don't walk long distances and like staying in Albergue, absolutely not. <laughs> um, I don't leave my house to not be in comfort. I would have told you. Um, and I still kind of subscribe to that, but I define comfort differently. You then I defined it back then. Yeah. Did you get a chance so. at all to cook on the Camino? No. No, that's not um, the. I mean, I got the chance to go into kitchens, but yeah. I didn't get a chance to cook. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you if I could about the Kumano Kodo in Japan. Yep, um, it's an amazing. So the Kumano Kodo is a so sister pilgrimage um, of the Camino de Santiago, and uh, I came across it haphazardly. Um, I had heard about, I'm trying to remember how it, I, I, I think I had heard, I had heard about Shikoku, which is another pilgrimage in Japan, and that's 88 temples, and right. it, it's quite quite a commitment. Um, and somehow I think I, I came across... And it was a Camino documentary, or I think it was a Camino article or documentary. And then at the very end, it made, like, in passing, uh, a mention of the Kumano Kodo. And I was like, I've never heard of that. What's that? And I Googled it. You know, Google, I usually joke that Google is my friend. And surely enough, Google came through. Uh, it's super reliable. Um, and I came across this article on CNN.com called the, uh, I guess, the most beautiful unknown hike in Japan. Right. And, and I started reading it, and that's the first time I became aware that it had a connection to the Camino de Santiago. I was like, wow. And then I started reading more and, and what it was about. Like, you, you, the goal is to visit three um, Shinto shrines and how they worship nature and um, I saw the pictures, and I was just amazed, and I was like, I need to do this. And that was in, I want to say, was that in May 2013 that I came across that article? Right. And I I went in March 2015, so about 18 months later, I was on the Kumano Kokoto. And it's a short pilgrimage. Yeah. Um, only five days of walking. But uh, the that is in a real world mountainous environment. So um, back then, I think now it's grown in popularity when they they created the, the tourism office of of Tanabe City, which is the main city in the Kamado Kodo, and the tourism office of Santiago created a dual pilgrimage program, and. Um, you know, I was number 23 to have gained the dual pilgrimage certification. Yeah. Um, I think now it's up to like w way more than a thousand. I know a friend that went maybe a couple years ago and she was like number 1031, something like that. So, um, so it wasn't very traveled. Um, the people don't speak English, but they're wonderful and kind. 
and the and the area is beautiful and yeah um as you know the camino i love the camino but there was a serenity that i got from the camino Cotto that i haven't gotten from any other place in the world wow that's a big rap so it's spelled if, if yeah. my listeners are wondering k-u-m-a-n-o k-o-d-o camino Cotto. so what about the food yeah. in the camino Cotto? Oh, that also was incredibly fresh. Yeah. Um, uh, I would even venture to say even fresher than on the Camino. Um, like I said, it's in a rural environment near the, it's a peninsula, so it's surrounded by water. Um, it's a rural environment near the sea. You get, uh, everyone has their own little orchards in their, in the back of their homes. And then, Nearby, you have one of the most famous fish markets in Japan, particular for tuna. Um, so you get amazingly fresh um, fish and vegetables. and But it's different food. It's food that you've probably never yeah. have um, eaten. Like one of the delicacies of the area or specialties of the area is pickled plums. Um, oh, wow. And they have this pickled plum wine. And so often, you know, as is custom in Japan, you get served a bento box with like eight or different ten little dishes, and they're all one more amazing than the other. And there'll um, invariably be a pickled plum uh, somewhere around the, the bento box, usually to be eaten as dessert. But yes. Pickled plums? I love plums. Yep, pickle plums. I had never heard that you could pickle plums no. or seen a pickle plum no. um, before <laughs> going to this area. I love it. Now, I, I'm, I've taken up enough of your time. It's early in the morning there. I've got a couple more questions. You've established a new mm-hmm. chapter of the American Pilgrims on the Camino in South Florida. Is there a vibrant Camino community there? Uh, yeah, I established that back in 2013, so six years ago. Um, uh, I no longer lead that chapter, but I am um, often go to their walks and their events. And there is a very vibrant community. So it, you know, the walks attract anywhere between 30 and 50 people each month. Um, and uh it, if I am pretty sure that if you take all the states of the U.S., Florida is one of the top five um, states of where pilgrims come from. Right. So that's South Florida. Is that Miami City? Yes. There's Miami. I mean, uh, South Florida, we, we, we count three counties. Okay. Miami-Dade, which includes Miami, Miami Beach, Coral Gables, and tons of little cities. And there's Broward County, where the biggest city is Fort Lauderdale. And then there's West, um, I mean, Palm Beach County, which the biggest city is West Palm Beach. Uh, and Boca, there are the two biggest cities, Boca Raton. Um, I, the majority of the people come from um, Dade County, and Broward, um, and that's. And I think it has to do because most of the activities are in, are in those two counties. Uh, the chapter doesn't do, hasn't done a lot of t- activities in West Palm Beach, mainly because we need people to help us out. Right. Um, so um, to do activities in those areas, it's hard for you to uh, organize an event in an area that's an hour and a half away. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's so, exactly right. That would be the same in Australia. I'm absolutely certain. Right, a very quick question about food. Can anyone, or do you have to be an expert to make a good paella? 
No, you don't have to be an expert. Paella is actually a very simple um, recipe. Um, it just takes time. You have to have patience. Right. Um, and you need to understand the cooking process. And uh, But it's not a hard cooking process. You just have to have time and patience, um, and you can make an amazing paella. And um, and the beauty of it, there's it's a very impressive dish. Everyone's like, "Ooh, wow, this is amazing!" Yeah. But also, it is so much. It's not an you know we there's some dishes that restaurants charge an arm and a leg because it looks so impressive that shouldn't they shouldn't be charging an arm and a leg um, because the ingredients are not that expensive and um, but they still do and paella is one of them I, I can I can name like two or three dishes like that uh, um, cheese fondue is another one like those are dishes that I don't eat out I always make them at home because they're really easy to make and fairly inexpensive and it kills me to go to a restaurant and pay top bucks for that <laughs> so now, so yeah but play is not hard you just need to um to uh, understand the cooking process and that's why in my book one up front i say please read the recipe before you, the whole recipe before you start so you understand the cooking process and that's incredibly necessary for a paella yeah so. take your time take your time now mm-hmm. yosmar it must be said that some of the pilgrim menu meals are pretty ordinary. But if you are prepared to look around, there are some very, very good places to eat and quite reasonably priced. We stumbled on a little place in La Roña and the cheese of the region, don't ask me to say it in Spanish, was astonishingly beautiful. And they recommended to us a local beef in a cheese sauce. And I think all up it cost us, and we had a couple of glasses of wine and a beer or two or something, it was like 32 euros. Now, I'm not suggesting that you pay that every night. But if you really want to look for some beautiful food, you don't have to have the the sort of, you know, the... the, the, the I agree. The, the fry, I, fries and sort of, you know, whatever those ham steaks yeah. and fries, you know. You can get quite a good meal for a reasonable price, can't you? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's what I, you know, what I've seen coming out with this book um, is that there's two distinct camps between pilgrims. Um, there's pilgrims like, oh, all I ate was soggy fries. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you didn't explore. Um, and then people that are like me that rave about the food and can't stop talking about it, et cetera. Um, and there will be places on the Camino that you won't have options and you will have a pretty ordinary meal, perhaps, including some soggy fries. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you're grateful for what you can get after a long day of walk. Um, but there are places in, in small and larger towns and cities that I really encourage people to to um, veer off the pilgrim menu option and explore food. It's not expensive, and it's amazing. And you're going to learn something about the region like you just learned about this amazing cheese. Yeah, and the, you know. the lo- local markets are always a very good place to start, aren't they? 
Exactly. The local markets are like, uh, for me, it's, I feel like I'm a five-year-old on Christmas Day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just seeing the ingredients and seeing how beautiful the seafood looks and, and the colors of the vegetables and being able to taste a piece of cheese while you're at the market. and um, Or even in Santiago, the market in Santiago is amazing. I mean, like you can go buy your ingredients and have them cooked at the hall next door for like you pay the ingredients and then you, you, they charge you like six euros per person to cook your meal for you for ingredients that you chose. Nobody else chose them. You chose them. So, uh, I mean, that's a pretty unique experience uh, that you don't get in many places. Really? So, I've never yeah. heard of that. How wonderful. Well, next time you're in Santiago, you should try it. I'm going to. You've been so kind with your time, Yosma. I really appreciate it. I love your passion for cooking, for food, for the Camino, and I love your philosophy just to keep it simple. What's not to love about that? Exactly, exactly. Well, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Um, It's a lovely podcast. podcast that you've created and um, I'm honored to be part of it. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thanks, Yosma. And I, I hope our paths cross at some stage. And if I have a crack at the Santiago tart, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> Perfect. I'd love to see it. <laughs> it, it. Thank you for your time. It's early in the morning there. I really appreciate it. Buen Camino. Thank you. Buen Camino to you too. My guest this week, the chef and author, Yosma Monique Martinez. You can find the book and Yosma at whiskandspatula.com, whiskandspatula.com. Families are like branches on a trees. We grow in different directions, yet our roots remain as one. One of the great joys of the Camino is sitting down to dine with other pilgrims, learning from others as our branches spread across the globe. Thank you for your company. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way.